Welcome to Vulnerability Hangover, the show where the only goal is authentic connection through vulnerable discussion. The rules? It's safe to be open, honesty is required, and kindness rules the conversation. The suggestions? Listen well, feel fully, and try to have some fun. Now introducing your host, Anthony Rita. Welcome to episode 15. This is going to be the last episode of the season. I think once this episode plays out, you'll understand. I launched this project on May 4th, 2021, and my mother passed away on May 8th. This interview was recorded about two weeks before that, and during this interview, Charlie talks about losing his mom. So at the time, I was deeply appreciative of Charlie being willing to come and talk about something like that. And now I am even more appreciative. Hearing some of this conversation back gave me encouragement, gave me things to aim for. Towards the end of this episode, Charlie talks about normalizing conversations and and really discussing what you are dealing with and what you are struggling with. Certainly in this instance and in these circumstances, being in the epicenter of grief, I can't recommend enough reaching out to people and, and talking to them and telling them what is what is really going on. Because you would be surprised, pleasantly surprised, at the healing and cathartic conversations you may have. So this is a very real very honest conversation and one that I don't know if I would say that I enjoyed but one that certainly meant a lot I would like to dedicate this episode to my mom so without further ado the conversation with Charlie Feinerman my guest today is Charlie Feinerman Charlie, thank you so much for joining. It is a pleasure to have you. I appreciate the time. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's nice to reconnect with you after a, a bit of time and not via text. So this is great. Thanks for having me. Yes. Yeah, of course. I can I can see your face and hear your voice. It's a beautiful thing. I will start, like I always start, with the better version of the worst question. And that is, why do you do what you do? I am marketing communications here in DC and at an agency. And, and I do what I do because I love need to be strategic and creative. I think I do it because ultimately what it comes down to is storytelling work and, and how a client or, or a brand is, is telling their story. Excellent. Love storytelling. If you're willing to explain and dive in a little bit on how you got to where you are today, uh, maybe some of the love of storytelling, love of creativity that kind of led you to end up doing what you're doing? So I think I, I started like a lot of people in our friend group, you know, I, I started, you know, wanting to go into sports, having a very strong desire to go into sports. I mean, I went into sports because I think ultimately that there's the, there's the stories and the best parts of life growing up as a kid, sometimes when you're into sports that are associated with sports. And so, you know, getting into that, getting into that creativity and, and wow, like, let me inspire this next generation and, and, and help 
let someone else see these amazing experiences that I have personally seen through sports and the ways that it's helped me. And so I got into that and, and I found out that, you know, the sports industry itself as an, as a business is not necessarily all it's cracked up to be in the sense that when you combine extremely high, you know, work hours with typically extremely low pay, those two things don't necessarily go well together. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> You're speaking my language. Yeah. So for me, it was just at one point, just, okay, well, how, what do I want to do? I really like marketing. I really like communications. I like telling these stories. And I think to me, there was something about building my own personal knowledge of the way things work. There's a, I have, a, I have like a general sense of curiosity with things. And so I always would look at advertisements. I would look at, you know, a commercial and I would always be looking at it. I feel like from a different lens than a lot of people do, I wouldn't be like, Oh, I want to get this product or, or this is interesting to me. I'd say like, Oh, well, why did they say that that way? Or why, what makes them, or why did they, what, what is the point of this? Or like, this is a great commercial because it made me feel something, or this one was terrible because it didn't. And, and so there was something about that that was always intriguing to me. And so making that transition over, I've always been really interested in coming up with unique experiences and, and, and the creativity that can come along with that. Because when you are, you know, working with clients that are trying to, you know, they say, Oh, I want to achieve this goal. And they're open to you to come up with the way that you reach that goal. And if you can use, you know, data, and things to inform a really creative, crazy idea that you know is is really different than anything anyone's thought of before for them, and it works. It's so vindicating, and it's a lot of fun because you are. It's almost like a form of art to me, you know, where you are creating an idea and and you're seeing it through, and people get to appreciate it, and in some ways, some people profit off of it. But like, it's. So, I mean, I think that just that, that innate curiosity about things and, and wanting to learn more and it's really helped shape my view of the world at a broader level, because I think understanding the way in which our attention is sort of commoditized, uh, and that are the stories that we're told every day in thousands of different touch points that we have and how that impacts our opinions it's so interesting to me at a broader level than just marketing communication. So I think I love to do what I do because it not just makes me excited and, and creative in the workplace, but even outside of that, it, it opens my mind up to all of these different things that I didn't necessarily see as clearly before it's, you know, sometimes, and, and this is, this is sort of weird. It's like, sometimes when I'm looking at like advertisements and things like that, I feel like I see the matrix in them, you know, and I'm just like, Oh, I see what they're trying to accomplish here. Uh, and, and that's a fun feeling. And I like that. And I think that that's really one of the things that's driven me to keep going in this field over time and why I love it so much. Yeah, no, that's a great answer. Would, would you say that it almost taught you, you had that original, okay, here's storytelling, here's creativity, here's something that made me feel a certain way. Have you been able to now learn some of the tactics that allow that to happen and, and then use them in your everyday life, in everyday communications? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the, the best example of that is, you know, from a it, almost a, a, a there's a detail oriented sense to that. Like one of those tactics really is, you know, making sure that you're really actually seeing the forest through the trees and not just seeing like a section of it. When, when someone comes to me with a, with an issue or a challenge or something like that, or, or, you know, I'm 
in a discussion with someone who might share, have an opposing viewpoint. I try to like look at things through, almost through the story that they've been told throughout their life. And I think some people will look at that as like different experiences and the things that you've experienced and some people being in like certain bubbles versus others. But in reality, I think, you know, your view on the world is so heavily impacted by the efficacy of certain stories to resonate with you at different points and key points in time. And, you know, it's like the difference between someone who gets really, really, really into like Fox news versus someone who gets really, really, really into, you know, watching you know, MSNBC or something like that, where it's like, over time, like in, in, a, in a single instance, like that's not going to necessarily sway you one way or the other. But when something becomes a pattern and you hear the same types of stories written the same way over and over again, it starts to inform your behavior and inform the way that you think. And so I try to use that in, in, in social settings and things like that when I don't jump to judgment on someone, because personally, it's like, I don't, I understand what's happening to you because you have heard these messages or you have understood things, um, in this way, or, you know, you, you are, your entire story of your life is framed by, uh, in some instances, it can be framed by the Bible. And so like understanding where to with like some of the context around people's lives is super helpful. And I think it's a tool that I have learned in work that is very applicable to the way that I understand and, and communicate with people. That sounds like empathy, honestly. That sounds like, yeah. It sounds like just trying to understand that there are other things that people have experienced and gone through that you might not know the specifics of and just trying to interact with them with that knowledge and, and not trying to to judge or, or jump to any conclusions. Brilliant. I feel like that's an okay segue into the, the meat of what we want to talk about. And that is under the umbrella of resilience and navigating your way through difficult or challenging experiences in life. And I know that you wanted to come on and really just dive in. And so I kind of want to turn it over to you as, as far as resilience and, and ways that you have found help cope with some of these difficulties or maybe unhealthy ways and the difference between the two, I, I really just want to kind of turn it over to you and we'll, we'll run from there. Oh man, I, resiliency is such a, is such a big topic, right? Like there's, I don't know where to necessarily start and where to, um, for me, I guess I could, I'll talk through the biggest, I think one of the bigger moments, there's, there's a couple key moments, I think in my personal life that, that have impacted resiliency for me. And, and, you know, one of them is, was the fate of my mom who passed away six years ago now uh, and, and the way in which that happened. Uh, another one which was resulting from that was a, a bout with a, a historical just throughout my life about binge eating and what became about with bulimia at a certain period in time. You know, even before that, I think there's a, just an overarching one kind of throughout my life with, with just a really fractured family structure and, you know, no clear, no clear, path set for me at times by family members because of just being involved in just being in the middle of internal conflicts between my mom and my dad when they you know divorced and my stepmother and, and and all of these types of things and so for me I think I guess I'll start with a big one which is the which is my mom and you know for me the 
so just just the the, the background and we'll, we'll tldr this because it's it's a long one you know my mom was my mom and my dad split when i was like five and you know my throughout my childhood my mom was very big on time spent right and and very much a, a component of time spent and so going through my life it was very hard for me because my dad is not an emotional person. He's the type of person that shows his love through gifts and through, you know, financially caring for someone. He's just, he's not a time spent. He's not hugs. He's not, that's not him. He's not, he's not going to go out in the yard and throw a football around with me. Like he's just never been his thing. And so my mom is over here while I'm living with her. She had custody, like telling me like, Oh, time is what love time equals love. And it took me so long to understand that that was not the case. And so when you fast forward into high school where, you know, that had gotten to a point, that message had gotten to a point in my head where it was really embedded in me. And I stopped talking to my dad for two years in high school. And in that time, my mom, who was this superhero in my head, right? Like she was everything to me. She's my best friend in an almost unhealthy way. Um, She was just, I, I wanted her attention more than anything, even though she didn't give it to me as much as I would have probably liked. You know, I, I wanted to, make her proud of me in a lot of ways. She was a she was a nurse. She was raising me and my sister basically by herself. She was also a bodybuilder who did modeling and, and was at award shows like the Maxwell from in college football and like being like a model on stage and handing, like doing all of this stuff like while she had me and my sister at home and, and raising us really well, right? And at some point we were volunteering because we also did that too because she just is like the superhuman and and and, you know, she stepped in like a divot in the ground and she had uh, the same injury that T.O. had uh, in that Super Bowl season. He had, she had a Liz Frank fracture in her foot. And at the time, the injury, like this is right before it happened to T.O., I think. And at the time, the injury was super rare and there wasn't much documentation on it. And so the doctor that performed the surgery on her basically fucked it up really bad and, and, and ruined her foot and really her life. And the, I guess the ultimate reason for her death was that she had been addicted to opioids. She was a victim of the opioid epidemic. And that stemmed from as soon as that surgery happened, they prescribed her with Oxycontin and Dilaudid at the same time, which is just like, it's mind numbing to me now. Um, and one of the reasons that I, 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 am, I don't take pain meds ever, I'd rather like spark up a joint than, than, than deal with pain meds ever in my life. And so the, um, you know, she, she gets on these drugs. And obviously they start to change her. And my, my, my junior year of high school, the November of my junior year of high school, I think I went to school like three or four days of that month. And I spent, she OD'd like five, six times. And I had to, you know, basically rush her to the ER and be in the ambulance with her and like get someone to come take care of my sister. And in between those days would go to her with her to her foot doctor where she would get like this big, like this big, like lidocaine needle into her foot, like right on the bone to numb, to block the pain. And, and so I would be in the room with her holding her hand and she'd be screaming and she would pass out. And like, you know, and I didn't know what was going on. I was 17, I was 16, 17 years old. Like I didn't know what the, what the fuck was going on. You know, I, I mean, I, grew up really fast in a lot of ways. And in a lot of ways I didn't because I didn't, I didn't have like closure on my childhood. I didn't have that kind of stuff. And so she, and I was there for her with all of these things. Like, and I'm like doing everything that I could do as her son. And I pouring myself out to her in this way. And, you know, we get, 
you fast forward a little bit further, you know, I go off to college and, and when I'm looking at schools, I was looking at Ohio State for pre-med and Arizona State for journalism. And, you know, I went to Arizona State for journalism and I, the reason I chose Arizona was because it was, it was like a paradise at the time to me. And it was so far away from everything I've ever known and I needed to get away from it. What ends up happening is that over the next several years, she gets a lot worse, right? And while I'm in school, there are several points in time that she, the, the drugs start to interact with her head. You know, we start getting in a lot of fights. We had never cursed each other when I was in the house, barely ever. I would get, I've had smacked or had my mouth washed out with soap or something. And, and you know, we get into college, we start having these really violent screaming matches at, on the phone. And like, I would talk to her every night at 3 a.m. or we wouldn't be talking for six months because, you know, we would have a huge blow up. And, and there were three different times in Arizona State when she disowned me and said these, I, I don't even remember because I've blocked them out of my brain, like these terrible things that she, you should never say to a son. And especially in my mind at the time, like a son that's been there for you in, in these things. And then the end of this tale, so to speak, and this is, is I finally, you know, I get back, I moved to DC, I'm in Georgetown, I just finished up my master's program in August. Uh, and it's September 8th, which is my dad's birthday. And I had driven home to Jersey uh, to spend it with him. And she had been in the hospital, like her body, she was not doing well, she didn't look good. You know, I was not expecting her to be around much longer at the rate she was going. And, and I, at the time, wasn't aware she was addicted to opioids still. She was making up other excuses and things. And I tried to give her the benefit of the doubt. And, and everyone else apparently did too. Uh, and so she'd been in the hospital and I went on his birthday to check in on her at home. She had just gotten home. And you know, I stopped in to say, hey, I love you. I'm just going down to DC after dad's like dinner tonight after we go to the dentist at two. PM and and like I just want to say you know I love you and 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 goodbye and she asked me to go run some errands for her and I was like I can't I'm like literally going to the dentist with my dad right now and she kept asking and then when I refused she says she starts screaming at me and she says like you're no fucking son of mine like get the fuck out of my house and we just go at it and the last and I I, I turn around I I scream and she's like you're no fucking son of mine and I scream go fuck yourself. And those two lines, that was the last word I ever heard from my mom. I slammed the door behind myself. And I don't really regret much in my life. But that I'll never, because she was always like, one of the other things she always used to teach me was like, never go to bed angry with someone because you never know when it's going to be the last time you're going to talk to them. And I broke that rule, right? Like I, I didn't speak to her. And then fast forward October 28th, 2014, I get a call, 17,000 calls from my dad. And, I, and, and, and she'd passed away. And I mean, that, it fucked me up really bad. And for years and years, I mean, you know, I, I got into a, I don't even know if it was really a depression, if it was just like a, didn't, I don't know what it was. There were stages of it. It was like rage and there was, I had to reconcile with all of these different people that she had been. There was a lot of, it's a re resiliency to me to get to the, the, the main point is here is, is like, to me, I always used school, I always used work, and I always used, you know, working out, and even video games and, and other things and other hobbies of mine as really just like distinct distractions from this stuff. And I would talk to people about things and I would push try to push through. And it was a dark time, right. And then in this time, I was also my binge eating, which I have a hurt, my, 
I have really bad hereditary impulsive type disorders like ADHD. I've got a binge eating disorder hereditarily. And that binge eating disorder turned into where I would just, it was doing too much of it. And, and it turned into bulimia because I was, my self-worth was so shot after she had died. And there was a period of time where I was really, really bad in bulimia and it, I was in a really dark place. And I kept, I, I don't know, it's, it's hard to describe, but resiliency to me in, in the way that I, it was growing up and everything, like even when my mom was hurt in high school, I had to rely on myself a lot. And so I always, you know, I was like, I can push through this. I can just push through. I'm going to do this. I'm going to solve this. I'm going to get through this. And I, and I, and I ultimately I did. And it's, but like that, it's hard. It's a hard thing to, to, to remain positive in, in those situations. It's hard to remain positive and it's, it's very challenging to keep pushing on and keep getting up to do these things that, you know, you, you, want to do for yourself, but you don't necessarily feel like doing every day. And, and uh, to be honest with you, I don't really have a good explanation for exactly how, you know, I did that stuff. I think it's just, there was just a drive in me that I really didn't want to be like her. I really didn't want to be like my dad. And I didn't, and my dad is obese too. And he's not going to live. I wouldn't be surprised. He's he, he, the way he's going, he's not going to live till the time that I get married. Right. And, and, and I don't want to be like my parents there's a lot of great things that they taught me, but the resiliency that I have is just this foundational belief that like I can have a better life than that from an emotional standpoint and make a better life for my family and the people I choose to live with and, and, and bring into this world eventually. And I, I want that really badly. I want to live that life that I, that they either didn't get to or that they messed up at some point in time. And so to me, I was just always pushing forward towards that. No, that one is both an inspiring story and a sad story. And I was listening to it and I was thinking, I've done a lot of, I guess, like reading and research into mindfulness for lack of a better term. And so much has to do with response to things that are outside of your control. And it seems as though the genesis of this were some things outside of your control, your mom's control, your dad's control. And I think that's what makes it even more difficult in some of those situations where you're in, in an experience that you did not bring upon yourself and yet still needing to find a way to, to push through or, or to carry on. And something else that I was thinking of when, when you mentioned looking for schools uh, and choosing Arizona State to be far, far away. And I had this thought of, you know, running, running away from things versus running, running away from things that are bad versus running to things that are good. And I myself have done a lot of running away from things or from difficult situations. And I've very often found that as far as you run geographically, you're going to run into you're, it's going gonna, it's gonna to circle back and you'll kind of run into whatever it is inside yourself that is causing some of those issues. For myself, I resonate with some of the addictive personality traits. There's a lot of, I've had conversations with my parents. It's like, you know, hey, there's a history of gambling in my family. There's a history of alcoholism. There's a history of drug use, drug abuse. And those are all things that I have to be really cognizant of 
and I have found my own vices and trying to figure out how to maybe not even push them away, but just sort of like recognize them and accept them. And then to use them strategically, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, And so I'm curious if, if you found certain things in maybe some of the more like quote unquote negative responses that you were able to spin into something a little more positive or find a way to have a healthier relationship with some of those aspects of yourself. Yeah. I think that to me, the biggest relationship that I've had trouble with in my life that isn't with a person is with food. And the challenge with it was always just having z- like I, I'm someone that has a lot. I, I, I pride myself on being on, on having control and being mindful and being strategic and in, in, in the things that I'm choosing to do and the way that I'm choosing to spend my time. Again, that being to me as, as how I was raised, the most important thing that you have uh, as an asset. And I, I mean, I, I would be out of complete, completely out of control. I mean, I something would tr- trigger in my head like a light switch. I would go to the grocery store. And I mean, when I was at ASU, as soon as I would you know, have my own apartment, I'd go to the grocery store, I'd get a gallon of ice cream, like a couple packs of chocolate chips, like order a pizza. And I would eat all of that in like one sitting. And, and I just all, and I've, have done that since high school, since I was matured in, in, in some way. And, and I mean, the struggle that I would go through would just be the guilt, just the pure guilt, the disappointment in myself afterwards, this feeling of regret, this feeling of, wow, I'm a piece of shit. Uh, I'm like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not worth anything. Like I work out super hard. I've always been, I've been super into fitness since college and like I work out super hard and I don't look like these other people who I know that work out even less hard than I do because I spend a couple nights a week just fucking eating like I'm a, a, a kid that doesn't have a you know, a full reflex at a, at a, at a candy store. And and so like I would go and, and I think to me, the thing that I took away from it more than anything is in getting through that is that it is like little victories. It's, it's never like, I'm going to stop binging. There were so many times when I was failing that I would say, I'm going to stop binge eating. I'm never going to do it again. And when you put those hard constraints on something, it becomes a lot harder to follow through because if you slip up a little bit, you you've already lost. And so then you just, you, you're like, Oh, I've already lost. So I'm going to go straight to the rock bottom again. And the thing that I took away, I think from a, a standpoint more than anything was that like, let me slowly, slowly tailor what I'm binging on and what I'm eating so that it's healthier so that it's less. And to train myself over time to, to, to get away from some of these really, really bad pieces of it where, all right, if you're going to do something and you're going to make a change, it doesn't, happen overnight it's 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 like anything it's like working out and you want to be giant and and be a bodybuilder you don't just start lifting 500 pounds you know you start working your way up and it's the same way with with getting out of a bad habit or getting you know out of a place and becoming resilient it's just i got to do the little things today and do them consistently and if i do them consistently over a long period of time i'm going to see good results and i think that that's it's hard to think about it like that because when you're in a bad situation, you just want out. But I think that that is ultimately the, the way you get through it. And in some ways you also have to let yourself go and be like, okay, with, you know, for me, the bulimia piece was really tied to self-worth and like not, you know, I would eat a ton of junk food and I was really in shape at the time. And I was the, the, with the day I stopped in, uh, with the bulimia, like the day, the last day I ever threw up from bulimia was July 11th, 
was, I forget the year exactly, but I was with a couple of my buddies out in Vegas and, and I had, they had left and I was there for a day by myself before I flew home. And I had, and I had eaten like two, five in and out double doubles and, and like six Cinnabons. Right. And I was, it was a disaster. And I remember going to throw up and I couldn't because the Cinnabons like coagulated in my stomach and I couldn't make myself purge. And I remember just looking at myself in the mirror, like it was yesterday, I was in the Luxor and just being like, this is enough. I don't care what it takes. I am not, I was like, I'm not throwing up anymore. And so from that point on, I gained like 20 pounds the rest of the summer because I was just, I was still binging, but I was just like, I don't care. Whatever I eat, it's okay. I look good. I don't care. No matter how I look, I'm going to let myself eat and then I can correct eating later, but I need to get past the, the, the purging part. It's like those little wins, like the progressive things are, are really how you, I feel like you get through. Yeah, that resonates so much. And I'm really glad that you mentioned not having just kind of like a black and white demarcation line where I'm going to stop right now with whatever it is, whatever this habit is. And if I fail, if I backslide, what you said about just immediately going right back to rock bottom. I've done that. My biggest vice is wheat and having just, yeah, just having too much of it. One of my, one of my rules that works really well is like no weed in the house. Cause if it's there, I'm going to smoke it. And so it's kind of one of those things where I'll get to a point where if I had weed in the house, I want to smoke weed. It takes two minutes, grind it up, load it, smoke it. You're good. If it's not in the house, now there's a whole process, right? And it's like, how bad do I actually, want to do this is this just sort of a crutch could i replace it with something else i love to read books found that if i'm ever like oh i kind of like get high and do nothing it's like i can actually just read a book for 45 minutes and then by the time that's done i don't have the urge anymore so i really yeah i I really like the the idea of having those incremental things and really not having it be a i need to do this cold turkey full stop right now because it's not entirely realistic and you will, it'll, it'll affect your, your self-esteem, your, your sense of self-worth. And one other thing that I wrote down as, as you were talking was uh, a sense of curiosity and having a sense of curiosity about why it is you want to do the things that you do. You know, why for me, why do I want to get high right now? What am I trying to run away from something? Am I trying to numb something? Is this going to like make an experience better with a group of friends and we're going to have a good time or am I by myself trying to bury something essentially and then having some of those conversations and, and really trying to figure out some of the, the reasons behind the actions that I take that I don't necessarily like if someone was like, Hey, do you want to, do you want to live your life in your twenties and be high most of the time? I'd be like, no, but I did that. And so trying to figure out like it's like okay what do you what do you want to do why do you want to do it and yeah and making those changes thank you for thank you for going through that process and sharing some of the the steps that you had what's what's really kind of interesting about that is just the things that we didn't know about each other at that time and how it like it wasn't superficial but i think so much of those relations so so those relationships can be so superficial at times where you know there just isn't as open communication about these serious issues because there's such a concern of, it's almost like you're still like in that high school mindset of like trying to be cool and and, and all that. And it's not like, it's not quite real life yet, which I guess is sort of the point. But when I look back on it, I wonder how much closer 
like you and I would have been even had we spent the time that we did spend together, you know, not bullshitting about like FIFA or, or some sort of, you know, flag football thing or, or, or internet rap battle and, and talking about like, hey, so like what's going on? And like normalizing that, you know, emotional discussion. It's, 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 it's always something that I'm very, speaking of curiosity, it's just something I'm very curious about. How are you actually doing? What are actual things going on in your life? What are things you're struggling with? And those are conversations that are huge and creates such a sense of empathy and such a sense of connection of, oh, you're going through these things. Maybe it's not, I don't know exactly what it is you're going through. You don't know exactly what I'm going through, but we can relate on how it makes us feel. And it's a, it's a humanizing experience. It's, it's lovely. It's wonderful. I think something about resiliency to me and one thing that you ultimately find out when you're, when you're pushing through things is that the, the greatest lesson is that everybody goes through shit and it's all relative, right? Like some people might listen to this and think, Oh, Charlie's been through crazy shit. And some people may be like, Oh, that's nothing. Like what, what is this? And, and it's all relative. And that's the best part about it is that like someone could have had nothing happen to them ever. And so the small thing is this dramatic negative for them, but like everyone has to go through that and everyone has to be resilient in their own ways. And what's so interesting is that when you do have people who've been through like an intense trauma and you just, it's like almost a natural thing where like, you know, we, we, we start texting about one thing and then it's, it becomes, Hey, like, this is what, this is something that I'm going through right now. We, we, you talk more deeply about that because, you know, if there's one thing about being resilient and trying to push through something is that it does, there's something that you, once you go through that, you can see it in other people and, and it, it leads to that empathy and it leads to those conversations and that communication. And to me, like just normalizing that is so important. Which is one of the reasons I'm so happy that you have me on the podcast is like, it's, it is so important to normalize that stuff. I 100% agree. I was very excited when you're like, bring me on, we'll talk about anything. I was like, yes, fantastic. Let's do that. There is one thing that I wanted to kind of circle back on. The idea of, of time spent being love and that being a way of, of showing love to someone. You said that you then realized that, that that wasn't true. I'm curious what you meant by that. I guess what I mean by it's not true is that it's not true for everyone, right? Like there's the, the five love languages and, and all of that kind of stuff. And I think that, you know, to me, I value time spent probably more than anything else just because of the way that I've been raised. And I do think time is the most important asset that we all have. To, to, to give to someone. And so, um, but that said, there are a lot of people who might value money more than time and might value, you know, intimacy more than time and, and physical touch more than time. And then that stuff is totally okay. I think the ultimate thing is, is that you have to communicate both parties, right. Have to be open to communicating like what is their preferred currency, so to speak, because for me, and this is a problem that I've always had with my dad is that, and, and it's, it's not a really a problem anymore because we have had, we've have talked about it. And, you know, it was a problem in high school where, you know, if, if I would have sat down and talked to my dad and said, Hey dad, I really want to spend time with you. And to me that like being loved by you would equal some time spent from you. Yeah. Some, some gifts and stuff, but some quality time spent and like just, more of like emotional discussions and less like business and, and, and mentorship type discussions. And like those things would be important to me. And, and, you know, and he would say, well, 
I'm not capable of giving you some of these things. And like, that doesn't, does that mean he's a bad person? Does that mean that I, I can't have a relationship with him? No, it just means that I have to meet him where we have level playing field. And, and so like, you know, I am very, I understand that my dad is, he's always there for me when I need help with something, you know, in a, in a financial way or something like that. Like, and I'm blessed in that regard, but that's the only, but that's, you know, and he's there when I need advice on topics like, 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 like business, like work and, 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 some personal topics and, and sometimes relationship things, though that's not always his forte, but he's, he's always there for me to talk through things, but he's just, he's not an emotional person. He doesn't really spend, he's not, you know, like I've lived in DC now for eight years. I think he's come down here maybe three or four times. And I think he regrets that. And he wishes he came down here more, but at the same time, he still hasn't. And so like, but I understand, like, I'm not, sometimes I get frustrated with him for that, but you know, I mean, but I, I do understand, like, he, he, he's there when I want to talk to him. He's, so it's, it's really like, time is super important, but I don't think it necessarily always equals love. Like, you just can't guarantee that that's just the way someone else is going to want to show it. And I think that's what makes relationships so hard is that so often people just don't discuss those different wavelengths and like how they give and receive things and what they want you know, or, or someone's, and then the worst part is like, when you know what those things are for yourself, but someone else just isn't open to the conversation or is just being ignorant to it. And that can be really frustrating. And, and for a while, my dad was like that, but like, it's, it's, it's much better now. I want to offer up uh, last call. If there's anything that you want to touch on or discuss or ask me or that you weren't asked yourself that you want to talk about, I want to always open it up two way street. If there's anything very end that you want to want to mention uh the only thing that i would say is that i'm I'm historically an overshare so this is always a little easier for me than 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 it wasn't in some respects but like i I love the name of the podcast because it's so accurate like we need to as people and especially as men i feel like be more vulnerable uh, and and just be more open i i found one of the best ways to get through bulimia when i was going through that and in the hardest time was just to talk to people about it people would ask me how i'm doing and you don't just say like, oh, I'm great. Like things are good. You know, I'm just like, I'm doing good, but I'm dealing with like, I'm, I'm having a hard time uh, and, and with, 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 with one thing right now. And, and people are receptive to talking about that kind of stuff. And you don't want to just dump it on people. Don't get me wrong. But there's a, a level of vulnerability that we all have to have and that we all to, to just to have good friendships, to, to be there for one another when we need something. And, and just honestly, just to open ourselves to other experiences and other people's things is just, you know, especially as guys, like I said, we need to be more vulnerable because we're so often, I feel like closed off. And my girlfriend has a, a thing she likes to say, like whenever some guy in a movie is doing something like ridiculously stupid or in a show, it's like, you know, men would rather do this than go to therapy. And there's nothing wrong. It's therapy is good. And, and it's like, and, and, and talking about feelings and talk, being vulnerable about like the past, it's all good. And so I think that's my big thing in closing is if there's anything that I've learned through my experiences is that communicating that and, and just when you're going through something and, and just sharing it with friends, you never know what you're going to get back. And I think you, know, you and I are a great example of that. And, but it's just such a, a broader concept. And so I'm, I'm, I'm really appreciative of the title and the, the, the whole nature of this podcast. And I'm so excited to have been able to, to come on and, and chat with you today. I could not have scripted a better last call and I agree completely. And I want to thank you for this conversation, really leaning into the vulnerability aspect. 
these types of conversations are exactly what I was hoping for when I came up with this project. And so thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for the time. And thank you for such great perspective and a really well laid out story and process of, of how you've been resilient. So I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Of course. Thank you. So we'll go to recommendations. My favorite part at the end of the show. Yes. So I'm going to ask you for a book, uh, music, and a recipe or, or item to cook. I will start with a book. All right. Book. Uh, I'm going to go with the book that I actually just bought my, my whole team uh, at, my, at my office. It's called Contagious. Uh, why, things, uh, is it why Things Stand Out. It's just called Contagious. It's not about the pandemic, I promise. Um, it's written by... <laughs> Uh, it's, it's, it's written by Jonah Berger, who is a professor at Wharton uh, his business school at Penn. And he talks about like what makes things catch on and, and what makes something, you know, become like viral. And then there's six key steps that he talks about in there. And I reference them all the time in work, but even beyond that, I, I'm, I'm always talking about that book and thinking about the way some of the things that are lined up in there because it, it is so accurate. And I talked to my team about it being essentially like the Bible for marketing and communications. And, and so can't recommend that book enough. It's a bright orange book with a light bulb on it. You can't miss it. Beautiful. Contagious. Jonah Berger. Done. Music. What do we got? Uh, music. I'm going to go... Uh, with the newer music in my life, which is uh, what my girlfriend actually introduced me to about a year ago, which is Synthwave. And specifically, we're going to go with The Midnight, these two dudes, and they have like a couple people that they could bring in at different times. But I mean, it is, like, if you like the Stranger Things, the vibe of Stranger Things, like the sound of Stranger Things, like this is that, but like amazing. I mean, there's like beautiful electric music. And then there's just like, bang saxophone solo and so it's it's just yeah you just if you if you're listening to them you know listen to jason is the one song they go start with but all like all of their albums are so good i mean you'll especially as someone who who also partakes in 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 the mary J. you know you will very much uh, in, enjoy that uh I, I feel like but yeah it's i can't recommend the minute enough excellent Anything with horns, I'm I'm in. Anything with a brass section, sign me up. Uh, okay, I'm gonna do a recipe. What do you got? I'm gonna go with uh, authentic Mexican shrimp ceviche that I may or may not have stolen the recipe from uh, an ex's mother at some point in time, uh, <laughs> who was who was Mexican, and so. And, and so uh, the, the recipe itself, I can tell it to you really fast because there's a lot of recipes online, but there's only like the one way to do this. You know, you get like a pound or two of shrimp, you get a big bowl, pound of shrimp raw, that's like deleavened and, and you know, all that stuff. You cut up a bunch of cucumbers, you cut up a bunch of jalapenos, you get a couple of uh, things of cilantro. I don't remember what they're called. Sure. Bushes bushels, whatever, bunches. That sounds right. Sure, whatever, whatever, you, whatever the word is. Some B word. A, a couple of bullshits of cilantro. So how <laughs> a bunch of red, on, uh, red onions as well. And then you get a, a ton of like either freshly squeezed lime juice or, or just limes that you squeeze manually and put it all, just like put all that cut up into a bowl, fill it up with like lime juice and about like the mixture should be like three parts lime juice, one part soy sauce. And the soy sauce there is like the secret ingredient that like isn't, you won't find it in a recipe online, but like the soy sauce is like 
key apparently amazing you, you you eat it with like uh some some like mexican cheese some chips you know you can get some avocado going on there and it is just it's super fresh it's super just like crisp i now i really want to go make it yeah <laughs> i want to go make it and so you got outside and then the key is like you, you fill the bowl up like that and then you put like a plastic wrap over it. you sit it in the fridge for a couple hours and the, 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 the shrimp will go from gray to bright orange and then they'll cook they cook in the acidity which is awesome so that's my dish. There you go. It's a snackable dish that's good for watching movies and stuff. Those are fantastic, Rex. Once again, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it. Thank you for coming on. It was a pleasure talking with you. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. <laughs> <laughs>